Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And today we're going to feature a story of multi-generation family operation. We are privileged to be talking with Ricardo Molina, coming to you from Folsher, Texas. Ricardo, thanks for joining us here on Corner Booth. Thanks for having me. Well, it's nice to meet you, Ricardo. And just to get things going, I'd like to uh, learn a little bit about your concept and your history. Uh, You know, everybody gets into this business through different pathways. And if I understand correctly, your pathway was carrying on a family legacy. But uh, why don't you uh, give us your history and background and, and, and what you're doing today? Sure. I am third generation of this family business. Our grandparents started it, thank goodness, back in 1941. I like to tell people that I'm an indentured servant, but they, they used to give you a, a kick-out date when you're an indentured servant 20 years or so, and I haven't gotten that day yet. So <laughs> I'm still going after it. I own the company with my brothers, uh, Raul and Roberto, and we've been operating it about 25 years since we bought uh, our parents out. We have three stores, two in Houston, one in Fulcher, Texas, which is about two years old now. We started right at the start of COVID. I mean, right, mm-hmm. right in the middle. We're at, at least we're at 50% seating when we opened. That's been a nightmare. I don't want to take make the show about COVID because everybody's COVID out. <laughs> but it's been it's been tough. The way it started is our grandparents immigrated from Mexico separately. Papa came from Nuevo Laredo and got to Houston by way of digging uh, gas pipelines. And that was, I think, the first utility that was real widely spread across the state. And he said they were in a caravan. They were manually digging ditches and and they were in different teams and dig a ditch, lay the pipe, covered it up and so on and so forth. And they lived in this caravan. And he said they got to Houston and they were going to head north. And he said he didn't like the cold, so they were going to head north towards Dallas. And mm. uh, he didn't like the cold, so he said, I'm going to try his luck here uh, in Houston. So he stayed. Our grandmother, Mama, her maiden name is Saravia, and she was the youngest of four kids. Uh, their father was killed back in the um, revolution. He was uh, going to buy a bull. He was going to be a rancher. He got... Uh, held up, robbed by uh, bandits, the best they can tell. He was killed and done and gone. The boys, the three older brothers were uh, several years older, and they moved uh, to Texas on their own. They lost track of each other. Uh, And then Mama, once they ended up in Houston, coincidentally, Mama came to Houston and, uh, you know, began her life here. There's Saravia family, one of the brothers, and it was, uh, would be, I guess, my great uncle Jose. 
he had, uh, they had a couple of businesses. One brother had a grocery store, uh, one had a bookstore, and one had a newspaper, and it was promoting, it was for the Hispanic community, but it was telling them and trying to share knowledge about how to immigrate to the United States and and become successful and, and build a life and all. And he opened uh, the Azteca Theater, which is the first Hispanic theater in, in uh, downtown Houston. Uh, my father told me it was the doctor that brought him into this world that was his partner in that deal. The angel, well, he re- could remember, he didn't remember the last name, but mama was working there selling tickets. And that's where she met Papa. He came to watch a show. They had vaudeville shows movies and all these different types of things. So they began dating. Well, Papa was here and he did all kinds of different jobs. He was a bus boy at some of the old downtown hotels. Um, he was a bus boy at uh, different diners, a tip top diner and different names that I've heard. And he worked at um, James's Coney Island. He started there as a dishwasher. He worked his way up to be a counterman. And he told me years ago that he spoke more Greek than English when he first got here. Um, that a little Greek influence with uh, mm-hmm. Coney Island. Sure, from the owners of the original James Coney Island, they were Greek. Yeah, they were Greek. So then they opened up a little um, a restaurant. They decided to get married. By the way, that was in there. Uh, <laughs> he was a when Papa was a busboy and a dishwasher, etc. And the older brothers didn't approve. Well, so they eloped. The older brothers said that they were going to annul the wedding, the marriage. And uh, he said they came looking for him with a 38. He said they lived next door to some Jewish people. And he said the Jews hit us out, hid me out in the chicken coop. And uh, he escaped that little mess. But they became great friends after all of that. And then they ended up opening their own restaurant, the old Monterey Inn on uh, West Gray by River Oak Shopping Center. And they lived upstairs and they had a, a little restaurant downstairs. And from what I can tell, it was it was more like a, a short order situation. And they had all kinds of different offerings, breakfast and, and steaks and all this. You know, thank you. You could you would sell anything you could. And I, I read somewhere that they were open from, gosh, it was like six, six in the morning to midnight. It's uh, it was brutal hours, you know, back then. And that was also, you know, back during the war. And then there was, um, was it rationing? Food rationing was a, a tremendous problem that you would get. Uh, he, Papa said they'd give you some coupons or, or some tickets or something. And you had to go out every day and try to get enough food to try to get open. You know, and I often think that how we are now and everything's so automated and we we send emails and texts and phone calls and where's my truck and where's my 50 pound bag of this and that and the other. So when we have difficulties now, we really are still rather spoiled. He said they didn't, you know, the standardized recipes, they didn't really do that as much and say put in four ounces of this and six ounces of that. Said you if you got enough meat to cook it, you start cooking it, put a little salt and stir it and cook it and taste it until you had just enough because it was real difficult to do to, to get supplies. 
And then there was a restaurant called Mexico City Restaurant. And I think it was a his cousin. And, and my dad was even unclear about this story because I asked him not too long ago. Dad's still alive, 93, doing great. He still comes into work some uh, weekend nights when he when he comes into town. But I should have him here for the history lesson. They bought the Mexico City restaurant. The guy that had it, he, he didn't know what he was doing. And it was uh, he was going broke. So he said he just bought it for next to nothing. But he had to, to bring it up to standards. And so they did that. And it was called Mexico City Restaurant. Uh, our Uncle George, my dad's younger brother, was working with them. Um, so it was my dad. You know, he started. He was older. And he started you know, washing dishes, bussing tables and being a waiter and, and different things. And he said it was, uh, you know, rather tough back then in the, in the early years. I don't know if it's gotten any easier, to be honest with you. But, Sometimes uh, I wonder. Yeah. Then they went off. It, at some point, they went off to the uh, they joined the military when they got drafted. I guess it was. <clears throat> and dad said when he got back from the military that uh, Papa had made them partners and it was a, a partnership and then it was started incorporating Molina's Molina's Mexico City restaurant and that's what we were for just years and years and years uh, after so many years it it, it kind of our guests would call it Molina's and uh, he was often referred to as Molina's and then going to print and going to monogram anything going to do anything it was molina's mexico city restaurants and uh then we were promoting bars so it was molina's mexico city restaurant and cantina and then by the time you did that you just ran out of paper and uh ink and everything else so we we just shortened it 15 years ago or so to molina's cantina and i don't there's few people that remember mexico city but uh not not many right now and so that's that's how it went for for many years until 19 i think believe it was 1977 mama and papa which grandmother mama she was an integral part of working in the business as well they were getting, they retired and they wanted to retire and <laughs> uncle george uh you know, he worked in the business and uh, he would be the first to tell you he never really loved the business. Uh, he did uh, real estate investments and different things. So uh, mom and dad bought, bought everybody out. Grandparents retired. Uncle George ended up being a, a justice of the peace. And then uh, he actually was a sheriff of Fort Bend County back in the 90s. Uh, in, until he retired, so he went a completely different direction, and that's kind of that's where we've been uh, until mom and dad wanted to uh, get out. And you know, I I started working in the business uh, as a dishwasher and a busboy and and all that in in a very young age. We would go with dad to, to work on the weekends, Saturday mornings, and stuff like that. Um, that was a lot of fun as a kid. And then that would be, I guess, in the early, early seventies. And the restaurant 
dad put out on Westheimer back in, uh, I think it was 1966, it would be extremely busy on the weekends. And so he needed to ramp up and, uh, and that means I was a dishwasher every weekend. And one of my best friends went with me. Uh, it was kind of strange the way the business evolved. And one thing that really, uh, I think was a tremendous help for our industry was liquor by the drink. And uh, that, I don't know, happened, I guess, in 1970, 72, 74, Chris, do you remember Yeah, I think that? you're right. Early 70s uh, in Texas, liquor by the drink. Finally, hello. Yeah, that was, that was a huge thing. You know, otherwise, all we had was Budweiser. I think it was Budweiser Slits, your couple of Mexican beers, and, and that was it. Um, well, you know, since you brought up liquor by the drink and you guys were one of the early on full service restaurants in the early 70s and you rolled out a, a liquor program, not just beer and wine. Maybe this would be a good time to kind of interrupt and explain to the people who in the heck in your family created the unbelievably strong margarita, the little Molina Margarita shooter that you guys are still famous for. Um, I'm not really sure where that started, um, but I think. Uh, somehow you got the reputation of the strongest margarita in the state. Well, there, that, that's, that's a good, uh, that's a good point and, and kind of an interesting subject because one tequila wasn't known across the country when the world, it was very regional down in, uh, in Texas. We've always known it. Uh, it was used fresh squeezed lime juice. It was two parts, uh, two parts tequila, one part lime, one part triple sec. And yeah, it's, it's very potent. So it, you can't really make a weak martini either to make, have a true one. But these days, a lot of people uh, aren't used to that. They are, it's more of a, more of a, a daiquiri and, and not near as potent. So when they, a lot of times they get a uh, Molina's margarita the first time they're like wow what is this this is crazy so, so we've had to create other offerings we still have our Molina's margarita absolutely but we do have other offerings that are, are real real popular right now but that really changed uh, the landscape I think uh, in the restaurants because it, uh, business really really took off before then, uh, people weren't eating out as much as they are now. And so I don't think the bars drove everything, but that was a piece of it. Then you got two people in the household working, people quit cooking, and uh, business has been really good. You can tell by the number of restaurants that are out there right now. And, and I think right now restaurants are 51% of the, the dining dollar. And that's quite a bit higher than it used to be years ago. As you got into the 80s and 90s, um, I'm assuming from what you're telling me that your your concept is is uh, primarily Mexican cuisine. And I'll be interested in you know hearing you know what what regional styles that that is. But um, you're talking about Houston. I've got to believe that's a pretty competitive market. What you know, other than this great margarita that you were serving, what do you think was the key to your success? What kept you competitive when 
you're, you're really in the heart of some of the best Mexican and Tex-Mex food in the world. Well, we are Tex-Mex and we use that in marketing. Said so we're proud to be Tex-Mex. Mm-hmm. There was a time when uh, people were saying uh, Tex-Mex is not Mexican food and it's not this and it's not that, which that's fine. It's not. It's Tex-Mex and we're very proud of it. But we've got the base recipes are the same thing that we've uh, we've had forever. We do small batch. We grind our own uh, chilies to make gravies and in, in, uh, in chili con carne. Uh, we do smaller batch rice, uh, everything. It's just, you know, the recipes are the recipes and that's what we, that's what we use. It's that we try to be the same on those base items uh, since, since forever. I mean, we've got some people, we've got fifth generation people dining with us. We've got uh, a gentleman that comes many times a week and he's just about 80 years old. Uh, he's been coming since they brought him in a carrier, but we want him to pick up something and eat it that he ordered back then. It's going to be the same. Mm-hmm. So that the queso, cheese enchiladas, crispy tacos, those are uh, the same. And, and people, it's our comfort food, I, I believe, in, uh, in our area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had a family business. You started in with the business at a pretty young age. Um, you have relatives who could have gone to the business, but they went in their directions. And I think for those who are listening who maybe are part of a family business right now, in fact, we just did a cover feature for the magazine on working with family and friends. Um, what drew you into it? Was it, it just, was it the path of least resistance for you or um, did you develop a passion for the industry at an early age and say, Hey, this, this is where I want to be. Um, there's no wrong answer because everybody, everybody has different reasons for being in this business. You know, you got to be careful because this business can really grow on you. It's, uh, it's a lot of times it's a fast pace. It's not a boring job. You're not really doing the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. And when I started, it was a lot uh, different than it is right now, but it, I still enjoy it. The best piece for me is dealing with the guest. I do enjoy food. I enjoy cooking. So that part's there. But you can work in one of our stores for two weeks and you're going to know a whole lot of people, Mm -hmm. uh, the the regulars. We've got families coming in for so many years. Uh, You know, we've done baptisms, uh, communions, graduations, weddings, funerals, uh, divorce parties, uh, Mm -hmm. the whole deal. So we'll take them from cradle to grave. That's the best part of it for me. Yeah, I mean, that kind of legacy, and I want to hear from Chris, too, because Chris has been guiding restaurants for a long time. But, you know, there are restaurants, and yours is one of them, or your concept is one of them, where you develop this relationship with people, with families. They just feel like they're part of your business. Um, that, that's, that stuff doesn't happen by accident. And, you know, for those people who are trying to be that kind of restaurant and for independence being in part of the community is, is, is key. 
what's the secret sauce behind that? It doesn't happen for everybody. I know that. I'm interested what you guys have to say about that because that's that's how you have a sustainable independent operation. Yeah. You know, being a part of the community and, and the friendships or relationships we build, we try to build those with uh, with our staff, with our guests, with our vendors. We don't change vendors all the time. Uh, we try to continue that uh, in, in hopes that they treat us the same way. And we've got some very long-term uh, staff, front of the house staff, uh, wait people that have, you know, people have come in and uh, they got to have, you know, Mila or they got to have Leonore. And that's uh, just kind of the way it, way it goes. I mean, Leonore's 50 years with us. I was washing dishes when she was uh, a bus girl. The food, the same thing. We, we've had to try to evolve and we have evolved some food items. Uh, but this long-term guest deal is kind of a double-edged sword because sometimes if you, you ch change something, you know, people want to know why you changed it. You know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You need, don't change it, put it back. Um, our original hot sauce, the salsa on the table, one of them is very distinctive. And uh, it was not so common. So newer people would try it and maybe they didn't enjoy it. So we put one uh, a little bit different. It was kept, kept the original. And I had a, a girl that was, uh, I bet she was 16, 17, has been coming in all her life. And she was upset. Is why do you have this? You need to get that off the table. <laughs> so, you know the original's fine and all that. I'm like, okay, if you don't want it, don't eat it. But she was visibly upset. So that's that's kind of a a, a piece of it. But I, I tell our our staff, and I said, you know, that means they feel ownership, right? Um, Absolutely. Right. That that, that that's you great. know. That that's the strongest form of marketing when you're when your guests and your customers feel they have some personal in, interest in this beyond just coming there. It, and and that fascinates me because I think that there's no stronger marketing than that. Um, no, no, I think you're right. I think there's no better marketing um, than the loyal the loyalty from a guest. And I think what I get out of that example, Ricardo, that you mentioned is a is how successful you and your family have been from raising guests from being, say, satisfied guests to loyal guests. We, we tell restaurateurs all the time, that's what you're trying to do. And if you've been in business a long, long time and you've got fifth generation diners, you've got diners that come in multiple times a week, that means they're long past being satisfied. They're loyal. They're an extended part of the family and that's your best marketing. They're out there marketing for you. I think that's fantastic and, and, and wish that kind of success uh, for more of the family owned restaurants that are you know listening today. But you know, Barry, getting back to your point, I'd love to just add a little shout out to that cover article on the family dynamic in restaurants. I thought it was really well done. For those listeners who haven't read the, the cover article of the most current restaurant startup and growth, it's a winner. Um, and um, I like the piece there that talked about how family finds ways of maintaining family and also maintaining work relationships within the same people. So 
maybe Ricardo, you could dwell a little bit on that. How did it just naturally work for you when you and your brothers took over, parents slowed down, you've got Raul, Roberto, and yourself. How did the dynamic work for you to decide who's really best at what? How are we going to work together? I mean, we're brothers forever, but we're also business owners too. How did you decide to how, to work that out? You know, I always say that you have to work for somebody. I'd, I'd rather work for my family. I'd rather work for my brothers. That you're not always going to agree Um but you gotta, you know, you kind of gotta know when to to back off, and uh, you know, I'm not gonna say it's not difficult at times. But Raul runs the office; and he's good with the details and the numbers, etc. And and Roberto and I handle the operations, and just try to show uh, some respect. And it's difficult, you know. You got different personalities, and uh, but that's working. That's working anywhere and with anyone. And I do know they've got my best interest at heart, and I do for them as well. And uh, you know, you just this tempers. If you got a temper, just learn to walk away. And hey, we'll deal with this later. Nothing's worth uh, losing. You know, your family. So it's worked well with us trying to deal with our, our uh, management. You know, I've got some managers been with us a very long time as well. And, you know, I've got a you know, couple and they'll come grab me to the side and say, hey, man, you're doing this, you're doing that. You might want to think about this. Okay, I appreciate it. And um, as long as you don't stand me up like a firing squad and, and do it. And I appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback. Try to treat them with the same respect. You know, there's times when then uh, I just say, hey, man, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. You know, I'm not feeling well and I'll see you later. Uh, uh, the, the people, the frontline people that deal with our guests are the, the backbone of our, our business. You know. We don't, I, I tell our managers all the time, we don't manage a restaurant. We manage people. Uh, and that's all it is. We have 60 people a store, all different cultures, ages, backgrounds, and, and everything. So you, you know, you've really got to uh, take that aspect into consideration. Uh, and it's challenging. It's challenging when you're busy challenging when you're tired and, and all but uh, I try to look back at the way our dad would treat people uh, our grandparents and the same thing you know uh, I had a guy work with me once running the kitchens and he told me I was too nice to the vendors they did something wrong one of them did something wrong and I didn't call him up and and raise cane with them and this and that and the other. I just said, hey, fix it. He goes, man, you're too nice. I said, I don't need to beat somebody up. It doesn't do any good. You know, what? what's that do for anybody? So kind of in it together. You know, um, and I appreciate what you just said. And, and, and this is for our listeners. 
and and this has come up over and over and over again and i'm just really happy to hear you say it you know we talk to operators who have had successes maybe they're this is the first generation restaurateurs or in your case you've had a family uh history of this and the, you know, we talk about the menu and and we all believe the food is great and the people love it and they want the hot sauce and they want the different dishes and menu items a certain way but the conversation always seems to go to this one thing and i want the listeners to really appreciate this if you don't have a good culture if you don't have good relationships with your with your staff with your vendors with your managers they're the ones that that make it all happen and i i and chris jump in there i have not heard i've not talked to one operator in the all the time we've been doing these particular podcasts who one did not explain just how important it was to, to have a good culture where you had people who trusted you and cared about your business and um uh and that that was really the key to to their general success well you're right i just think it was just said best ricardo when you just were explaining how you and your brothers get along and select how you work and how you just have to do things and remember what's most important. And that's the relationships that obviously comes through in everybody's management style because you just so easily explained how managers agree with you and everyone's approach to managing the restaurant business is that we're not really managing a business, we're managing people. And so there you go. If we just remember that, that it is, it's a people business. If we're treating people correctly, if we're bonding with people, if they know and understand us, it sounds like that's the culture that you've got. Then you've got a positive work environment. People look forward to working uh, in. They feel comfortable going up to the owners and suggesting improvements or having questions or making comments. They feel comfortable doing that. They know they're going to be heard. They know they're important and that you want them to be included. And then they're obviously going to be staying for a while. I just think it's incredible how you just casually mention how long certain people are here. And this one particular employee has been here ever since you were a busboy. And, you know, I want the listeners to realize that that doesn't just happen. It only happens if you create a really good work environment where people just simply feel like an extended family member and they want to stay. You obviously have a way about you. Uh, and your brothers must also, that in every unit, you have sort of a family dynamic feeling. Or in this day and age, where it's hard to find staff and it's hard to keep staff, you wouldn't just be having staff that stay with you for 5, 10, 20 years or more. So good but, for you. But the other part of it that I, that Ricardo brings up, which which is important for everybody here, I believe, you know, as well as he and his business are doing this, it, it's not easy stuff. You have your bad days. You have your days where you're just tired of everybody. You have your days when you've lost your patience. That to maintain that energy takes discipline. So it is not magic. This is, you know, from what I'm hearing, Ricardo, this, there are, there are easier days than, than others in terms of keeping that good energy going. Well, that's, <laughs> There's been a lot of those lately, but, you know, and, and again, I try to tell our managers, look, you know, these guys, you know, we don't want them, you know, they have to show up to work to earn a living, to get a paycheck and, and all that. I don't want them coming to work 
and hating it, you know, to walk in and see a particular person and go, oh, Lord, I've got to work with that guy today, you know, and stuff like that, you know, uh, you just, it's really, it's really tough. And, and, you know, the job market and the culture these days has is, is never been so difficult. Never, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, there's this, the shortage has been, uh, it's been terrible. Yeah. You know, I tell folks that I worry about the manager's mental health because, you know, you get everything uh, set just right. And, you know, you, it used to be you'd walk in and, and you've got Chris over here in his station. He knows what he's doing. Barry's over there, knows what he's doing. You're walking in. Hey, guys, y'all need anything? And, uh, you know, let's get open and let's, you know, so on and so forth. And now you walk in, you want to see who's there, or rather who's not going to be there. Hey guys, what do you not have? When is this delivery truck not showing up and what's going to be on it? A lot of times, uh, even with the bill of lading, you don't know what's going to be on the truck. You know, might pull up and have zero meat. And so it's just, you know, oh, here we go again. And and just as soon as you get the full staff balanced out, you get a couple of people leave. And so that's frustrating. And and it's got to be real, real difficult on on these guys, these managers, and we talk about it all the time and try not to, uh, you know, to dwell on it. Like I said about COVID or, you don't want to dwell on COVID. Let's get some of the stuff behind us, move forward. I do think things are looking up in that respect. Um, the supply chain issue, that is, I don't know, uh, when, when that comes to an end, and when normal comes back, whatever normal is right now. Right. Uh, thank goodness we averted the, I think we did, the railroad strike. That yes, I think so. At least that's that's what we're hearing. But you bring right. up a great point, though, is it has been difficult, hasn't it, to sort of plan uh, inventory management when you're ordering to your par levels. And some days the truck delivers everything you order, we get half of what you ordered and some brands are in stock and sometimes things are switched to another brand. So that's difficult. But in addition to that difficulty, could you talk a little bit about maybe how your units adjusted to uh, the changes maybe in the way uh, customers tend to order your product now? Since COVID, have you seen a dramatic increase in curbside pickups still? uh, are you doing an awful lot of online orders and third-party delivery? Um, and if so, how is it working for you? The uh, yeah, the curbside orders to go are, are still up, um, way up from what we used to do, and we're happy about that. We've adjusted. I'm real proud of the way the guys at the stores have and girls um, have made those adjustments. Uh, I think it's here to stay, obviously. The third-party deliveries, uh, we use some. We don't seek them out that much simply for economic reasons. They're very expensive. And where we're located, uh, more neighborhood areas, and people, I, I think people like to come get their own uh, get their own food, have a margarita, have, take a little break and wait. So, But it's really it's the, the, uh, the fees I know they're working on on that, but uh, we're we're happy the way we're doing it. We got it where they can order online on our um, our site, 
and and that uh, facilitates the speed and accuracy of your orders and all. Um, but yeah, that's going to be there. Of course, now the packaging, you're going to get shortages on uh, on your packaging, your paper goods. Uh, what you were saying, you order one thing, then they'll sub. Well, that's just terrible right now. It's uh, um, food, paper, everything. Uh, there was a glass shortage. You couldn't get liquor. Uh, you couldn't get Mexican beer. We heard it was something at the border at one at one point. It was getting caught up there. They had the liquor. There's no bottles to put it in. Uh, another thing we're seeing is uh, China glassware and whatnot. Say if if my take on it, if Libby had a, a thousand types of glasses um, and they they ran out and they're starting to fill up the inventory again, they're not making a thousand. They might be making 200. So the glasses you used is no longer available. We're finding a whole lot of that um, in plates and glasses. Um, same with the, the SKUs on the food items. You know, they might not be bringing in 30 types of uh, a yellow cheese now. It might be five or 10. And I guess that changes one of these days, but it hadn't this day yet. So that's that's a big deal for us because we don't like to change. We absolutely don't like to change anything. Uh, we keep it the same <laughs> uh, where you're left to where you have to. But guests are very understanding uh, about that, and they're they're dealing with the, the same thing, you know. So it's a battle. They yeah. a battle. Sounds yeah. like it. Are there unique situations that you have to adjust to in your units? depending upon the community that you're in. You've got multiple units and are the neighborhoods that you're located in slightly different with say strength in different sales or, uh, um, or busy at different uh, times? Uh, do you have different demographics? Uh, and, and how do you adjust, if you do, your community approach and your marketing at all? Mm-hmm. Well, our two stores in Houston are, are demographically quite a bit similar actually it's not by design it's just they're in older areas um and we've had a presence there you know the newer store uh bel air we had the one in on um in west university on the north side buffalo speedway was there for 20 years and since the i guess the 80s 86 87 uh westheimer's been there since 66 Vulture's been there two years. So uh, the demographic in Vulture is um, similar in one in a lot of ways than the others is uh, that we're not known. We've been around since 1941. Right. I don't know my grandfather. I don't know my dad and stuff like that. So we're introducing ourselves to the uh, to the community. And uh, it's a lot of a lot of families, a lot of young families and kids. So we're always trying to listen and, and hear what we hear. So far, it's going well. You know, we you got to have queso, you know, <laughs> chips, sauce, and, and stuff. But uh, yeah, we try to listen to the management and see what they they hear. Uh, we've had a section in our well, we do have a section on our menu of items that have been there forever and will stay there. And then we have another section 
uh, with the grilled items and in salads and soups. Uh, we have a, a leaf that we can put in these in, in our menus that will put featured items, uh, whether it's food or beverage, and run those for a while. And then we see if they if they're popular, uh, have staying power. We'll consider putting them on the menu. So that's really the way that we try to try to handle that. We found it very difficult to rely on uh, suggestive selling um, from our from our wait staff, especially. You know, there's a lot of turnover, and uh, then when you get busy, that's the first time that that's you know kind of goes out the window. You're just trying to trying to get through it, and so these written menus really do the trick for us. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I know. And I, and I wanted to, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about that point because you've got, you know, a 30 or 40 year old unit in an old part of town. You've got one that's over 60 years and one that's two years and it's in a newer part of town. And so I'm kind of happy to hear that you feel there's a way of having the traditional favorites that are the Molina mainstays, but then adjust around it to fit what the community's desires are as far as grilled items, healthier items, or seasonal favorites or things. So I'm glad that that's working. Yeah. You know, we talk about being, being around a long time and in Tex-Mex and we talked a little earlier about tequila and how it was a real, I guess, a regional, even a state deal for a long, long time. Uh, you got so many people that are moving into our area in Texas uh, from other places, uh, they they don't know know it's a new thing for a lot of people. Still, not as bad as it used to be. I remember in the eighties, we would uh, cater parties for a company that brought people in from across the uh, the country. They brought them into Houston for training, and we would feed them all the time. It was an electronics company, and we'd be there serving food, and you. Finally, we figured out that we had to tell them what a tamale was. We had mm -hmm. to tell them to remove the shuck. They wanted to know what guacamole was. Uh, wow. They didn't know what avocados were and different things like that. Now, I'm pretty sure you can get it, you know, just about anywhere. But also, you you, you, you all probably seen Tex-Mex restaurants in Houston that didn't travel well to, say, Austin, San Antonio, or Dallas, and vice versa. You know, some Dallas units have come down here because they're Tex-Mex, but they're different. Yeah, so that's uh, something you have to always kind of keep in mind that, uh, you know, they just moved here from Ohio. Maybe they don't know what great Mexican food is, and we have to show them. And that's an interesting uh, point. I, I think it resonates, you know, particularly where where I live in, in the Raleigh-Durham area, which is, is attracting because of it, it it's uh, it's a tech hub it's attracting uh workers from all over the the country um apple computers is is uh, has a, a east coast headquarters here now and there are restaurants here that have a long history like yours that um you know have a good following because uh, people know them and and people have been going there for a long time um, and you've depended a lot on your ability to maintain that legacy. Um, what are you doing marketing-wise to get the newcomers in, uh, to get them uh, up to speed with what you're doing? Um, 
you, you know, what marketing is working for you? Or is it mostly word of mouth? They're running into people and they're asking, hey, where's a good place to eat Mexican food? And they they point out your concept. Yeah. You know, marketing, we don't do television commercials. There's not a whole lot of time to sit and explain things. We try to maintain a presence in the area um, to get them uh, to get them to walk in the door. And then you have to work on that word of mouth piece that you brought up. And so, so important. We try to do a table touch with everybody that comes in. We, you know, with social media is just, you know, whatever it is, uh, but it's there. And we'd rather them talk to us and tell us if they have an issue before they go sit in their car or we have had them sit at our table and post things, but they don't give you an opportunity to, to make things right. And any operator simply wants an opportunity to make things right. We try to get in front of them before it blows up, you know, Hopefully, if there's an issue, they don't enjoy something, we can get something in front of them before they walk out the door that they enjoy. It's not about us making a, a fortune on one person one time dining with us. It's us trying to get them to come in once a month, twice a month, uh, three times a month, whatever it is. We, we live on relationships and repeat business and uh, loyalty. So that's uh, what we really try to do with all of our our staff, and that's a huge piece for our management to, to do. Well, that's a good point. And, you know, touching the tables is, seems to be something there, you know, all full service operators do just as a matter of, of practice. But um, you make a great point, which very few you'll ever have ever mentioned. It's, it's a way of um, catching problems uh, early early enough to do something about them rather than people quietly leaving and then just never coming back. Yeah. And, you know, I just think that people need to make a note of that because yes, of course, the best way to get your message out now is photos on Instagram, social media, email blasts. Um, social media is really, really the way restaurants seem to be talking to the members of the community, but it still comes down to that four walls marketing that Ricardo just mentioned that you've got to have a staff that likes to be in front of the guest and build that relationship. You've got to have managers that want to touch the table, extend the gratitude, suggest things, open the doors, wish people coming back. Those little touches are going to set, you know, the people who are going to be around for years and years and years apart from those. Who are. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's key to it. And I'll tell you the, uh, a piece of that, that we're kind of wrestling with now is these point of sale systems. Uh, everybody, a lot of people are going to the, uh, the handheld point of sale mm -hmm. and they order at the table, push it, order gets sent sufficient, nice, neat, clean. But, you know, I, I, uh, I went to a very old diner in, uh, up by, up by Marble Falls just several days ago, old diner. And an old waitress, and she had, she had the deal. But it just really it takes the eyes off of, of you, and it puts the eyes on to the little, the little box. And you know, for me, if I, I know it takes the same amount of time to ring up an order, whether you're doing it at the table at that moment, or if you're writing it down, then you have to go over to a, 
a, a tabletop unit and, and ring it up. But I'm thinking, gosh, they got to be at a, a table of eight for quite a long time and ask all these questions. And it's to me as bothersome, but the problem is it's going that way. Everybody's going that way. It's quick, efficient, and, and, and inexpensive, but it does take the eyes off of you, uh, the guest, mm-hmm. and puts the weight person's eyes onto the electronic device. I think it's an issue with some, I'm not going to say we're old, but some more seasoned diners and uh, young folks. I, I really, quite honestly, I don't know if it bothers them a bit, but that's just another thing that we're all going to have to, uh, to adjust to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, uh, I certainly understand the, the, um, uh, the, the convenience for the server being able to do everything uh, so quickly at t- table side. But, you know, if you're trying to promote your restaurant as something where you have, uh, and I learned this term from Chris, a, 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 a slower concept, where people are going to spend money there and they're not wanting to be pushed out the door when the server shows up with that device. It's basically saying, Hey, you're done. You're out of here. Um, you know, it's, 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 you're more processing your guests than serving them. Um, I think, you know, I I think people have to consider that. I'm not sure it's necessarily an age thing. I think it has to do with what people are expecting from you when they come into your restaurant. Yeah. There you go. I think you're right on the money, Barry. I think um, Ricardo brings up a good point that every listener is going to have to decide on their own, and that is technology is helpful. Yes, technology is in our business. It's not going anywhere. But it's incumbent, I guess, upon the user to pick what types of technology and where is it beneficial to that concept. Uh, Many people that are more quick serve are going to be using more technology to control orders from screens to touch boards, uh, and yet more of what you just mentioned, slower, full service, create more of a dining experience, can utilize an awful lot of technology that's behind the scenes to help control inventory, power levels, better manage labor. Those are the things that the guests never see anyway. Mm -hmm. So on top of every other challenge that we seem to have, and Ricardo, today you've laid out many that operators are facing, you're just going to have to look at the, the advantages of technology and select only those that seem to fit within your concept because uh, not everything's going to work for everybody. Everything's heading that way. And, and again, I, if, if you ask, you know, my daughters are younger, if you ask them and they wouldn't think twice about this electronic view. And, and you know, I, I tell, I've told my daughters, I tell some of the younger folks that work with us, the wait staff, they're younger. So I remember when you ordered an iced tea, And they brought a saucer, a glass of iced tea, like a coffee saucer, a glass of iced tea on the saucer, a lemon wedge on the side. They put a spoon uh, on the table. You had your sugar there. That was your iced tea. And I always, uh, I remember back, I think it was like, like Chili's was, went to the beer mugs and they throw the lemon, lemon inside the drink. You fished it out with your fingers and all that. That was not that long ago, but I mean, the saucers went away years ago, but the expectation uh, many years ago and now, or, you know, it's a lot different. And quite frankly, the uh, older point of sale systems, they're going away. 
and uh, I fear rather quickly we're uh, you know going to be forced into using uh, these newer table side systems. It's just a matter of economics and practicality. So hang on for that ride. So Ricardo, you 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 and your family have been at this for a long time. You, you have multiple concepts. Um, are you pretty much satisfied with where things are and just keep it going? Or uh, are you still looking uh, at other opportunities for growth, uh, whether it's expanding uh, what you're doing at your, uh, your current concepts or um, looking for another unit um, or two units or even another concept? What, what, how are you looking at the future now? You know, uh, right now, uh, I'm happy with where things are right now. I, the, the, I'll go back to the COVID. The opening in COVID and the stresses on the, on the labor pool right now have been so incredibly difficult. We have not been staffed 100% probably in the last two and a half years, wow. at least. Um, there was times that we would call it COVID seating. We'd go to 50% and people say, hey, I'm, why I'm on a wait? You've got a table over there. We don't have the staff. Um, and so I, I just, I, I know I just met with a bunch of restaurant folks at a meeting and it was the number one uh Number one concern that the other concern is this pricing, the inflation and uh, the shortages have caused prices to go up. Y'all have seen oils and fats and, and, and tripled uh, beef has gone went fajillas went crazy. It, it's now it's just a little insane. They've came down some. Uh, so you, everybody's had to adjust their prices. I know people don't uh, change their prices usually once a year, year and a half. People are doing it two and three times a year. And uh, the fear is they're reaching the saturation point and they're starting to comment more where they used to say, hey, I know it's expensive. I go to the, the grocery store and things cost a lot. But and, you know, there you go. But at some point it hits and, you know, do they start uh, reducing their their meals out? So yeah. there's a lot of concerns out there. Uh, so right now I'm pretty happy sitting, sitting where we are at this moment. Mm -hmm. Well, it does sound, it does sound like you're right. You've got a lot on your plate, uh, right now with, uh, uh, the same elements that post COVID has given independent operators product, labor, cost, and prices. Uh, but we're very, very confident, obviously that you are going to succeed with how you manage that menu and product. And you're gonna be able to do it in a way where you're gonna to continue to keep that people forward environment and keep your, your key staff for a long, long period of time. This is Molina's Cantina with 80 years behind them. And we're so thankful that you've taken time today to share your story. And we look forward to how many more years that Molina's Cantinas are gonna be around and how many more members of your family are gonna be able to continue to carry your torch. So Ricardo, thanks so much for today. This has been enjoyable. I'm sorry our time is, is getting to a close, but you've given some really good points for people to listen to and learn from. We thank you for that. Thank you, Ricardo. Thanks, gentlemen. Hope you all have a great day.
for you too. Be well. Everybody, we hope we meet up really soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.